The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now on Fast, consumers keep piling on the debt, and it's now at a new record level as the major retailers get set to report this week. How worried should investors be that the spending spigot is about to get turned off? Plus, a banking battleground. Shares of Bank of America falling more than 20% in just the last three months and down more than 16% for the year. Why is this money center monster being laughed by the competition? We'll debate that. And later, an activist trying to sh- shack up with Shake Shack inside Sarepta's monster move higher, and the Beijing bounce. Can you trust the Chinese stock rebound? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Courtney Garcia, Bono and Eisen, and Guy Adami. And we start off with a staggering number on just how much the U.S. consumer is carrying. $17 trillion and counting. This, according to a new report from the New York Fed, debt is now at record levels and has jumped nearly $3 trillion from its pre-COVID levels. The spike comes as the nation's biggest retailers get ready to report earnings. Home Depot, Target, TJX companies, Walmart, Foot Locker deliver quarterly numbers starting tomorrow. Of those retailers, only Walmart is trading higher over the past three months. So how worried should the markets be that the consumers are getting close to some sort of spending limit, (laughs) Tim? Well, I mean, they should be concerned about a couple of things. First of all, there's a disinflationary trend, which we think is great for the consumer, but it's not great for people like Walmart. So, you know, if you think about it, um, to the extent that uh, not only do you have this $17 trillion debt number that's just kind of scary, but you're now with credit card debt over a trillion. So they're all happening at the same time. The consumer seems to be drawing in wherever they can. You had University of Michigan on Friday saying that, you know, you're down 9% month over month. You had a terrible empire uh, manufacturing. We know Manufacturing's near not only recessionary lows, but but you know, effectively near all-time lows. So um, how does the consumer hang in there? They have a job. Um, how, how do these trends continue? I don't think they do. Uh, in fact, Walmart's comps are expected to be six to, six to seven percent. They've actually been downgraded. But a lot of these companies are really going by, uh, it, you know, they're rallying off of less is more. And I, I look at a Home Depot, and I think we can argue that Home Depot, their multiple is very defensive here. A guy talked about this on Friday. I would make the same argument, you know, around 16 times, lows around 30. 13 times. These have priced in a lot of weakness, and I think a lot of weakness in the housing market. But look, we haven't even gotten into consumer credit issues. This is one of the reasons why we're going to talk about banks later on in the show. They're all wound up together. I mean, there's good news, bad news here, Guy, in terms of the consumer and reading, reading those debt levels, right? The good news might be, if you want to be on the sunny side of the street, that they continue to spend. And so that bodes well for the retailers in terms of the quarters that they will report. The bad news is that if a lot of that is credit card, Um, And we are hearing anecdotally from retailers that a lot more consumers are using their credit cards. Those interest rates are getting higher because rates are going higher. Which side of the I street like are you yeah, on? The we sunny know which side he lives on. I'm always on. on. I'm always on the sunny side of the street, Melms. I mean, come on. Of course, why of course. wouldn't one be? But I'll, here's my pushback to that: the Federal Reserve is fighting inflation with rise, raising interest rates. The United States consumer is fighting inflation by adding to debt levels. 36% of U.S. adults now have more credit card debt than they have savings. In context, that's up from 21% a couple of years ago. And we're talking about staggering numbers. And forget about U.S. debt to GDP, which in June of 2008 
was 65%. Now it's north of 130%, approaching $32 trillion. So you talk about debt problems? Absolutely. Does the market care? No. And we say all the time, the U.S. consumer will absolutely spend regardless until something happens that catches their attention. And quite frankly, nothing's happened to catch their attention yet. I think it's that U.S. debt to GDP number guy that you pointed out that really kind of tells a bit more of the story because it's a relative number. 17 trillion clearly is scary, and I'm not going to try to downplay that, but that is a nominal figure, so it's not necessarily adjusted uh, in real terms. So, like explaining essentially what spending power, what debt load truly is. What also is a little bit more concerning is that you're not seeing the same type of refinance or home-related type of uh, debt levels with consumers. Those are actually servicing or, or, or allowing one to purchase an asset. You are seeing, as Melissa pointed out, some anecdotal shift into more consumer debt. And I think that is very concerning. And the last thing, the Walmart versus Target debate. I think the reason why you're seeing Walmart outperform recently is because they sell a lot more staples as percentage of their revenue Groceries. versus Target, which is a bit more, I don't want to say discretionary, but you know, home goods and decor and clothing, things that you could argue are a bit more discretionary, even though they're lower price. So I think that, that is the way of the market telling you that you know, the ability of the consumer to continue to spend at least on a discretionary level, is reaching a stressing point. Yeah, and I think just to argue kind of the glass half full here, I think at the same time that you're seeing these debt levels are high, you're also seeing cash levels are still at highs right now. So a lot of this debt right now, the $17 trillion, a lot of that is going to be mortgages, which we have clients all the time with 2 to 3% mortgages, and I'm telling them, don't pay that down. It's basically free money. You should keep that going. Um, and you're also seeing a lot of that as student loans, which people were not required to pay for the last several years. And so those balances have remained high, which is part of the reason that this is staying high. But I think a lot of that is people got very nervous during COVID. They want to keep their cash cushion. They prefer to put some on debt to, to preserve their cash. But starting to see more go on credit cards, I do think that trend is a little concerning. I just don't think it's at you know, overly concerning levels at this point in time. And I think that's really what you want to take a look at. That's an interesting point because they were saying that, you know, that the study was noting that there's usually a seasonality. Fourth quarter, you go out and spend, right? You're buying presents, et cetera. So your balances go up. And then you get your tax refund, you start paying that down. They're not seeing that this year. So the seasonality is not really playing out, Tim. And so that, that sort of is what is different. It may go to Courtney's point in terms of wanting to keep a cash cushion, or it may go to we don't have the funds. We don't have the <laughs> to funds. Pay down that debt uh, again. We're getting we're getting anecdotal IRS tax receipt right. numbers not to say good. not so much. Um, I, I also listened to a number of the CEOs that we've heard announced over the last few weeks, almost boasting about their ability to raise prices. Yeah. And pricing power is great if you have a brand. Um, it's not necessarily great in discretionary land. And, and it gets back to, though, companies like Apple, which is the largest consumer products company in the world. I realize it's a services company. I realize it's a tech company. But these are trends that at some point, I think, come home to roost. And, I, and I, I just, you know, that's the dynamic. Walmart, I'm long Walmart. I'm less long Walmart than I was uh, three to six months ago because I've been selling upside calls and I've been slowly getting called away. Walmart's one of the most crowded trades out there, to be clear. So, you know, you have to be careful when you own something like this. And if you look at uh, expectations going into those earnings, I think people are preparing, uh, even though I don't think Walmart's going to disappoint. I think they have already seen some downgrade uh, on the EPS. So, again, be careful of these crowded trades. We know Walmart's defensive. It's been defensive. Uh, and again, it's been defensive because groceries are 55 percent of sales. If we believe that inflation is, in fact, coming down, Guy, which is what Paul Tudor Jones said this morning on Squawk Box, something to that effect, that he believes that the Fed has succeeded or will, will have succeeded in taming inflation, then should we be in a trade like a Walmart? I mean, gas prices are already down 30 percent year, uh, year on year, excuse me. And so if we are seeing these things come down, maybe you want to switch out of the sort of staples kind of trade a little bit. 
I think that's what, to Tim's point, I think that's what people are doing. We talked about it on Friday, you know, the fact that you've had this stealth rally in Walmart taking us almost back to its all-time high. And that's somewhat counterintuitive because there were a couple quarters where Walmart was taken out to the woodshed. So, yes, and it's, listen, inflation is coming down. And I guess, you know, Paul Tudor Jones used the term, the Fed can take a victory lap or claim victory or mm-hmm. something to that extent. But, you know, my pushback is, yeah, it's coming down. We've had 500 basis points of hikes. I don't think the stock market and or the economy has felt the full impact of that yet. And when it does, that's when we're going to get the sort of the residual impact on the market. We're just not there yet. So, yeah, they can say, you know what, we tamed inflation. At what cost? And I think you're starting to see it now. There is a difference, too, between the consumer that will spend and earnings. There's a difference between, you know, where consumer spends, they may spend a lot someplace, but it's not a great investment, Bonwin. So how do you separate that out in terms of, for instance, you know, Tim's quandary? Walmart's a great stock. It's probably positioned well, but there's been a huge rally in this one. Do you still want to be in it? Um, I, I think it's a good point. I, I think we're kind of addressing half the issue. So we've, we've spoken about inflation and really what we've linked. The inflation has been front and center for so long that we've really kind of coupled inflation and the Fed fighting it along with the market. Right. I think what's happening now is that there's increasing focus on recessionary pressures. Right. If you look at the loan um, portfolio manager survey, if you look at the Dallas Fed, what you're seeing is loan contraction. You're seeing credit um, credit quality slightly erosion, and really what you're starting to see is credit standards start to ratchet up. All of that speaks to economic activity. And so for me, yes, the inflation side of the equation might have started to abate, but I still think the recessionary side of the equation is starting to creep up. And that's why I think a trade like Walmart might actually still be something that you might want to look into doing. Yeah, actually, I was going to bring up the same point. So I, I, I'm actually still optimistic that hopefully we're not going into a recession, or if so, it's not going to be a major recession. But um, sentiment is that we're going into a recession. Like, um, if you look at the AI consumer sentiment surveys, they are extremely high right now. I mean, people have basically been overly bearish for over a year and a half, and they're waiting for this recession to happen that hasn't happened. And they're preparing for that. And so that's where you're getting people are a lot more frugal, and they are still, you're getting that trade-down effect, like a Walmart or TJ Maxx. And I think that's going to continue, whether recession happens or not. If people think it's going to happen, that's where they're going to be spending. Yes. <laughs> Perception is reality at some point, right? <laughs> no question. I... I- I guess I just worry also about where corporate credit uh, dynamics are also going to play in here. So I'm not necessarily worried about corporate balance sheets uh, as much as maybe we're even more worried about the household balance sheet, which I think we've all said isn't falling apart yet. But I, I worry about margins that have been coming from companies that have been able to finance at almost zero rates and the, the capital markets calisthenics that a lot of these folks have done. Remember, the floating rate note market is now one of the largest um, sources of financing out there. And, and if you look at the borrowing costs for companies, they're up 15 percent. That will play right into margins. So the profitability of companies, companies that have had pricing power, pri- companies that have had the top line working for them. Again, a lot of retailers care a lot more about it, uh, the, the top line, as we've talked about. There are multiple trends that add up into that EPS downgrade that we're talking about that I'm not sure we've even had. All right. Our next guest plans to watch the retailers very carefully. Tony Dwyer is a chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, great to have you with us. Great to be um, with you, Mel. What, what are you going to look for signs of? It sounds like the consumer continues to spend. Well, because they have credit available via credit yeah. cards. But as Timmy said, that's hitting a new level. So, I, you know, at, at some point you're going to deplete your cash and the money supply data the movement of money out of deposits into money market funds uh, and the use of credit cards is going to hit a level that's going to be unsustainable. I I think we're pretty close to it, Mel. So are there particular uh, retailers, Tony, that you think will give you the best read in terms of the economy? 
It's the more defensive ones. And and I, mm-hmm. I totally get, you know, I'm typically the bull up until the last 15 months. But, you know, I went back and I looked because you're getting such outperformance in the defensive sectors that it made me think, well, maybe it's already priced in. But when you go back and look at pre-recession periods before, they're usually outperforming going into a recession and then outperform in the beginning of it and then reverse hard once you hit that low. And that's really so... Um, Mel, that's our game plan, is to stay light uh, and exposure and a little bit more defensive without getting too negative because it's when bad news becomes bad news is that final leg lower that you typically get. Tony, it's Tim. Great having you. Where are we in this EPS downgrade cycle that we've talked about? I mean, we, we, we're, we're, we're in that earnings recession if you're, again, technically going by recession numbers. And, and I, I guess I just, you know, I just can, am concerned that companies aren't worth what they were yesterday in a rising rate environment, not only for the math that you do here, but because of that EPS. Well, good to see you, Timmy. Uh, according to my earnings wizard at Refinitiv, yes, I have an earnings wizard at Refinitiv. When you look at the operating earnings margin, it doesn't drop because of cost. So, you know, everybody goes into the earnings season thinking, OK, costs are going to be up. It's going to pressure profit margins and that's going to be bad for earnings. Of course, that's that's been true to a, a minor degree. What really crushes margins is when the top line begins to weaken. We're currently at about a 10 percent operating profit margin for the S&P 500. Prior to 2019, in any environment, you were never in a double-digit level. And typically, you were in the mid-single-digit level if you go into recession. So if you, the way that I'm looking at it from an earnings standpoint, Timmy, is if you go, if you look at the earnings yield, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, it's the reverse of the PE. It's the EP. And that way, you can compare it directly with six-month treasuries. You're getting an equivalent six-month treasury yield than you're getting using my $210 estimate, um, which is below the street, but but not you know Armageddon level. It's 210 versus 220th street. So with that scenario, there's no reason to take a major major bet. Um, just seeing what you're positioned in, Tony, right now, it looks like you're sort of in, in a bunker. I mean, by Tony Dwyer standards, <laughs> you are. Um, so, uh, you know, just if you're an average person at home and there are plenty of people out there who invest mainly in indices, do you invest for the next six months in an index or do you invest in the next six months in a T-bill, which yields more than 5% at this point? We just I, showed. I think it's the next three months in the T-bill, Mel. This is a levered system. And when it, when it does decide to drop, it's going to do it really quickly. I, I don't. I think the debt ceiling debate, I, you know, somebody asked me today, what's, what's the catalyst? And we're all so full of it. We don't know what the catalyst is. You never know what the catalyst or you wouldn't have this massive drawdown. It's going to be something that's unexpected in some way. Here, here's what I do know. The bull story is kind of that October was the loan was discounting everything. The NASDAQ AD line, remember all the biggest stocks are in the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ AD line made an all-time low on Friday. The volume AD line for the New York Stock Exchange is making a new low. These things don't typically happen when you're coming off of a major bear market low. So, Mel, we're looking for one more push lower, and it's going to be a nasty push. And it, it was you and the team, the last time the yield curve inverted in the end of 2019, you and the team, we had a video on behind me or a picture when I was in studio of the Grim Reaper, and it was the Dwyer Doomsday Clock. It's all about money. You're a permable when there's open money and quite a, a, a solid availability of money. And when it's not, like now, You just want to stay on the sidelines. Tony, good to see you. Thank you. Great to be with you, Mel. Tony Dwyer. 
Tony is the reaper. He's wow. apparently he's the reaper. I mean, it's going to be quick and nasty. The the final push lower guy. I know you're in that camp. <laughs> yeah, but as Blue Oyster Cult once said so famously, and Tim knows this, you know, don't fear the don't reaper fear. because when, when when the reaper comes, it doesn't matter anyway. But listen, Tony, it's amazing. He gets painted in such corners, and his work is extraordinary in terms of what he's doing. He's not a perma anything. He's just perma smart. And he's talking about the things that we've been talking about. And those advanced declines, I mean, throw this up there as well. Right now, Microsoft and Apple combined are more than 14% of the S&P 500. That's extraordinary. And maybe that can continue. Maybe the market can continue to be dragged up by a handful of names. I don't think that's the case, though. All right. Coming up, EU approval. Microsoft's Activision deal getting the okay from European regulators. So will other countries follow? we got the details straight ahead. But first, a burger bump. Shake Shack shares jumping as activist investors get involved. More on the food fight next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, custom customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shake Shack topping the tape today, soaring nearly 8%, its highest close in more than a year. The stock jumping on a report that activist investor Engage Capital has amassed nearly 7% stake in the burger joint, is seeking three seats on the board. Shares are up nearly 70% this year, including today's gain, but have been nearly cut in half from their high hit back in early 2021. It was curious to see the statement uh, basically saying our stock is up a lot this year. It was down a lot right. the year before, and I think that's what Engage Capital was was concerned about. <laughs> well, management's been very focused on profitability, and you've heard that in their earnings call, and they should be, and, but maybe now we kind of get why. Um, again, three seats possibly in play, a, a voting structure, a share structure that, that could be streamlined, could be made made more interesting. I, I just say this for the stock and the move that it's had. It's been extraordinary. And, and, and I would also point out that uh, it's not just uh, – where the activist investor and, and, and a lot of investors are looking at the stock today. Much of the street is coming around to a doubling of profit story over the next three years. The issue is really the operating margin, and that really gets into the crux of the activist argument about they could be more profitable. So, um, again, I, I think you've had a big move in the stock. I think you've priced in a lot of news, and I'm not sure I'm chasing it here. Yeah, Court, do you like this one? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be chasing it here either. Um, but I do think this is good news, whether activists come in or not. Clearly, this is what investors want to see is that return to profitability, which they really have not been able to show thus far. 
Um, and it's kind of interesting. I know it was like maybe a month or two ago, there was a survey that came out with Shake Shack, and they were one of the ones that people felt like they were getting the less bang for their bucks. So they're increasing their prices, and people were saying, eh, I don't know if Shake Shack is worth it any longer. Rather, they go to fast food or go out to restaurants. And I think that's interesting as you're starting to see consumers maybe pushing back on that. But they've had a very, I think, strong pricing power, which I think has actually been uh, very impressive from them. But yes, I think a lot of this is probably already priced in at this point. How much is that burger, Guy? Did you still work there? Yeah, I did. I know you see that was a rhetorical question because <laughs> you know that I worked there. And I mean, if the crack staff back in D.C. wasn't like flipping through a People magazine, they'd probably put the video up. But I'll spare them that and say, yes, I did. Number one. And, you know, I think we pointed out in December, the stock traded down to levels we saw, I think, in March of 2020, 37 and change. And we thought it could bounce. I tell you what, I didn't think it would double in this period of time. But here we are. Valuation is a problem. They need to. There it is. By Hold the on. Way. Where's the hairnet? Yeah, no, I don't it's see a hairnet. Disturbing. Mm. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. For no me. gloves. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh. He's using his hands, well, isn't he? I, I mean, I, I'm sure Shake Shack just, is not thrilled. No, with that, that is. <laughs> no, no. Can a I disclaimer, say disclaimer. Listen, that's a great job by our crack staff back in D.C. I will tell you that the stock proceeded to go on a multi-run uh, run uh, after move after that. Just for sake. Yeah. So. Just put in perspective. But the stock needs to grow into the valuation, I guess, is what I'm saying. So to stop here at 70 for a while makes a little bit of sense to me. You owe this crack staff, by the way, an apology because they're not flipping through People magazine. I'm kidding. That's a joke. I Come know. on. Does anybody tell? Of course they're not. I know I'm, that. I've been in the control room, and they are laser focused. I'm sure. I mean, they do an amazing job. That's why I call them crack staff. All right, okay. If they didn't do an amazing job, I wouldn't say it because it would be true. Counterintuitive, I know. Yeah, and they probably don't even print People magazine. So anyway, uh, a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Gaming go ahead. European regulators giving the Microsoft Activision deal a big thumbs up. But the battle is far from over. The details next. Plus, financial flop. One money center bank lagging the group. So is there more pain ahead as rates keep rising? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. European Union regulators approving Microsoft's $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard today. The ruling a major win for this potential deal, which was blocked in the UK due to antitrust concerns. The EU saying Microsoft offered remedies in its cloud gaming business that staved off antitrust issues. Could this be good news in terms of getting U.S. approval is the question, Bonwin. Marginally. I, I'm not that pumped up about it, if I'm being honest with you. You still have the U.K. that voted it down. You have the EU, and they purportedly uh, came to some, I guess, preliminary agreement for a 10-year kind of licensing agreement. But the issue is like the vertical nature of this merger. You essentially have Activision, which makes these games, and then Microsoft, which 
produces the consoles that you would be that they would be played on. So, you know, I, I just don't know if like the competitive landscape is, and I really think that's what's going to be the U.S. regulations kind of pushback. Is the competitive landscape adequate to justify all the other cloud distributors and gaming console providers that would be using these games? And I, I that's still a very opaque. Uh, not so minor detail, in my in my opinion. Here. I mean, we have an FTC here, which is an activist FTC, if you will, in terms of being outspoken about um, deals. They don't want deals to happen. I mean, that's how we've been saying all, this whole time. Big tech is not going to make any major deals because they're too big. They don't want to see that. They are. They're not going to listen to this. That's what Bono was saying. I, I you know, they can, they, 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 they'll, they'll listen to it. It'll come in one ear, but I, I, I don't know if it's going to move it. I will say though, I don't think this deal um, is, is, is something that really pushes out all competitors. I, I, I look at Microsoft's place in both hardware. I look at the multi-gamer and the, and the, the console, uh, like balance there, and, and really their ability also to, to offset a lot of these services. So um, I think the deal gets done, and, and it just it leaves you with who next to go down. There aren't a lot of people left. Um, and, you know, that may be the place to be looking for the trade. I mean, Microsoft, as a Microsoft shareholder, do you think that Microsoft needs this deal now? It's got this, it's got AI now. It's got AI. And AI is going to add uh-huh. to earnings in so many different ways, Courtney. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they need this deal. I think they have plenty in their pipeline, plenty in their cloud services that are going to be beneficial to them. Um, I do think it would be helpful. I agree with Bonner. I don't know if this is going to go through yet. I don't know if, uh, you know, what's happening with the EU is going to trump the UK. The UK did even come out and there was a statement made somewhere along those lines of like, this isn't going to change our opinion. Um, so I don't know if this is really going to make or break things. But, you know, Microsoft is a, a great company either way with or without this. So, Guy. $70 billion deal for Microsoft, a $2.3 trillion company, is not necessarily going to move the needle. But I like where Tim is going with this. And if you sort of read between the lines, what's next? I mean, Electronic Arts has lagged. you got to believe at some point they're on somebody's radar screens. There's another symbol out there whose market cap allows us to speak to it, GDEV, Nexters. People will start talking about that. Um, so there are names out there that could be in play on the back of this. This deal... Whether it gets done or not, I'm not even sure if that's the story. The story is who's next in line um, to sort of make moves like this that potentially could get done. And to me, Electronic Arts has to have a huge bullseye on their back, which would be a good thing who, for shareholders. Who? Well, in, in the environment where big tech is not going to do the deal or it's going to run up all, against all sorts of roadblocks, who does it? Maybe in Netflix. You know, again, Netflix has been talking a little bit about Games. their, their parlay into mm-hmm. gaming. I, I realize Disney's balance sheet is a little strapped here, but again, we, we've often talked about the big media companies because the interactivity of gaming is where their business is going. Right. Coming up, we're focusing on financials as one money center bank lags the rest of the group. Why our next guest says the problems could persist if rates continue to rise. RBC's Gerard Cassidy will join us next to talk big banks, regionals, and much more. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks kicking off the week in the green ahead of more debt ceiling negotiations tomorrow. The Dow climbing nearly 50 points. The S&P up three-tenths of a percent and the Nasdaq leading the gains up more than a half a percent. Shares of drug maker Sarepta Therapeutics surging 30 percent after advisors at the FDA-backed accelerated approval of the latest gene therapy drug. The FDA expected to make a final decision by the end of the month. We don't know if they'll agree with this panel, but it is likely that they will, Guy. 
Yeah, likely that they will. The vote was 8-6. Um, and if you listen, if you read the commentary, it wasn't like a resounding 8-6. I mean, there are clearly some people on the fence. But gene therapy is real. And if you have Duchenne muscular dystrophy, this is a big win, clearly. Question is, how do you trade the stock here? We're right back to the levels we saw in March before it traded down about 115. And here we are again around 158. Um, huge volume day, trade about 8 million shares. I will tell you, I would be inclined to stay with this because I think it's probably going to sneak past at the end of the month. But there's absolutely nothing wrong if you had this binary event on your bingo card taking some money off the table. I don't want to try to play both sides. I'm inclined to stay long, but the discipline thing is probably to take some money off the table here. All right, let's turn now to a battleground in the banks. The Bank of America surging 2% today, but underperforming its money center peers over the last three months. The stock is down 22%, while Wells Fargo is up, uh, down 19%. Citi is down 11 and J.P. Morgan down 6%. So why have investors been turning their backs on BAC? Let's bring in Gerard Cassidy, Managing Director and Head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, great to have you with us. You say the answer lies in the difference between its bond portfolio and its peers' bond portfolio. Yes, Melissa, when you take a look at the underperformance of Bank America relative to its peers, I think the big hang-up that investors have had is that they have a very large bond portfolio, and it has about the health and maturity portion of that portfolio has an average duration or average maturity, I should say, of about eight years. And so that's weighing on the growth the net interest income since that portfolio is at lower rates than what you can get today. So does that material, I mean, versus the competitors, Gerard, are your expectations for Bank of America in terms of profitability, are they much different because of this difference in its bond portfolio? I, I wouldn't say it's much different, Melissa, but in view of what's going on in the banking sector with what we saw earlier in the year with the failures and the big uh, issue of the unrealized losses in bond portfolios um, you know, be becoming a concern for investors. You know, Bank America has those issues as well, the, you know, the unrealized losses. But they'll manage through that. You know, the portfolio will burn down over the you know, years to come. And they have plenty of core deposits. So we're not worried about that. But it's just that it may weigh on their profitability, again, on the net interest income line. And I think people have moved to the sidelines because of that. And it's Courtney here. Thanks again for having us. Um, I, I completely understand your point here and why they're underperforming. And I'm curious, too, how much of this is you're starting to see consumers who are nervous about banks are heading to something like a J.P. Morgan, which is kind of tried and tested in a recessionary environment, considered a little bit more of a safety play. And so I'm wondering how much of that plays into the underperformance and how much of that is already priced in. And should investors be looking at this as more of a buying opportunity, considering how much is underperformed this year? Courtney, I'm with you on the last point that it is definitely a buying opportunity because it has underperformed. And as Bank of America showed in the first quarter results, they saw an influx of deposits like J.P. Morgan. So nobody's avoiding Bank of America or J.P. Morgan for that matter. And the entire deposit flight problem, as we move away from those failures of you know March, I think that's going to die down further as we go forward. And the banks will start to regain some momentum as people understand that those banks that failed were really idiosyncratic problems. And it's not reflective of the industry at all. 
Do the banks regain momentum, Gerard, simply because it, it'll look like a bad situation that gets a little bit better or they're real fundamental? I mean, if you think about what is ahead, we've got a debt ceiling debate which could drive um, bond yields higher, which would make it worse for the entire sector in general. Uh, we've got potential consumer under stress. We've got tightening credit. We've got banks that have to pay out much higher interest rates in order to maintain that deposit flight. I mean, I, I, I feel like there was a reason why banks stuck to 0.1% on a savings deposit uh, for as long as they could until they had to raise it to market rates. No, you bring up some very valid points, Melissa, and I would point out that, you know, the way that deposit baiters are working, which you just referenced, you know, raising those deposit rates, is very similar to past tightening cycles. And what's fascinating to us is in the last four tightening cycles, once the Fed reaches the terminal rate in Fed funds rates, then you start to see the banks behave better because what's likely to happen is deposit rates stop going up one to two quarters after the terminal rate is reached, but the banks are still reinvesting cash flows from the securities portfolio at higher yields and the margins start to stabilize. And that could also, we could see that by the end of the year. But you're right, you know, there is a lot of cross currents out there in the economy, and that is certainly affecting the bank stocks. But if we really have seen the last of the Fed fund rate increases, that's going to be, I think, a real positive catalyst for the banks on the next six to 12 months. Hi, Gerard. Bonowin here. Um, so if you listen to a lot of these uh, investor calls, you hear a lot of um, discussion around loan growth, portfolio growth. As, that, as we enter a more challenging loan growth environment, would you mind speaking to how we should be thinking about the large money center banks versus the regionals and who might be more challenged in that type of environment? It's a, it's a really good question because as we've seen, loan growth on a year-over-year basis is still high single digits for the banks. But sequentially, since the beginning of the first quarter, it has certainly slowed down much more dramatically. And this is not uncommon during this type of this part of the cycle. You know, the loan growth in the U.S. banking industry typically grows at the nominal rate of GDP. So if we see nominal GDP growth this year of four or five percent, then we should expect three to four percent total loan growth this year. But in terms of money centers versus regionals, the money centers are driven much more by consumer lending than the regional banks. The regional banks are driven more by commercial and industrial and commercial real estate lending. And what we saw in the most recent senior loan officer survey on lending, the demand for loans from commercial and commercial real estate customers have really fallen off. So it's a long way of saying the money centers could be the better play on the loan growth aspect of owning a bank right now. Gerard, great to see you. Thanks. Gerard Thank Cassidy, you. RBC. Multiple choice. Pay attention. Ooh. Get a pet out. Um, JP Morgan, Bank of America, or none of the above? Tim. Boy, um, Having underperformed J.P. Morgan for the last six months by 30 percent, um, I'm going to take A, Bank of America. Was that A? Was that B? Was I it? think it was B, but that's okay. I'll take I, that. I, I, you played well. I, I, at least you I played, played well. the game. I apparently, but I did that in school all the time. Wait. I got the answer right, but I wrote in the wrong letter. I mean, it explains that, a lot. <laughs> that was your excuse. <laughs> I just did it right there, <laughs> verbally. A guy. What would you say? <laughs> First of all. That's not true. He got it. If you, you, he got it wrong. I mean, when you're wrong, you're wrong. That's fair. But I'll, I'll totally play fair. your reindeer game. I'm with Tim on this one. I don't know what Letter Bank of America is in that three-pronged multiple choice, but I'll take Bank of America just in terms of the, the mean reversion trade. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Uh, we want to get back to Leslie Picker with an update on the Berkshire Hathaway 13F filing. Leslie. Hey, Melissa, I wanted to make a correction for some of our reporting on Berkshire Hathaway's 13F filing. Earlier, we told you that the firm added to positions in Bank of America and Citigroup during the quarter. But in a separate press release, Berkshire Hathaway clarified that those bank shares actually stemmed from holdings owned by a subsidiary of Genre, which Berkshire had acquired in 1998. And beginning with today's 13F filing, the holdings of Genre will be included in Berkshire's 13F filing. So just to clarify, Berkshire did not buy any additional Bank of America or City shares during the quarter. Those were uh, inherited through this affiliated subsidiary. Melissa. Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. Coming up, a check on the Chinese consumer, the post-COVID recovery, and the impact on Chinese stocks are Eunice Yoon set to bring us the latest from Beijing. Plus, Tesla gearing up for their annual shareholder meeting tomorrow. Is this a buying opportunity? We'll hit the options pits for that trade ahead. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chinese internet stock JD.com rallying more than 6% today. Tencent, Baidu, and Alibaba following the move ahead of earnings and key retail sales data set to be released. So what is going on in the minds of Chinese consumers? CNBC's Yunus Yun gives us an inside look. For Beijing used car salesman Han Shu, business has never been this good. He sells nine cars a month. Before the COVID controls, he would sell four. In the past, people wouldn't even consider buying a used car, he says. Today, it's all about price. While sales of new cars dropped 7% in the first quarter from last year, sales of used ones rose 10% to 4.3 million. Popular chains like Chinese tea brand Hey Tea put out reduced-price versions of their standard menu. Its signature drinks sell for $4. Its new simpler options, $2.80. But some people hurt so badly, they're looking to get things as cheap as they can. A hot trend is selling nearly expired food at bargain basement prices, like at discount retailer Hot Max or grocery outlets backed by Alibaba. Food here is discounted by at least half, and often up to 90%, depending on the expiration date. The pandemic has changed people's mindset. People are panicked about the economic outlook, job security, and falling income, the shopper says. So we want to save more. April retail sales are out tomorrow. The forecast is for double-digit growth, but that's compared to last year, when the economy was tied up in pandemic restrictions. Melissa? Eunice Yoon, thank you. Eunice is live in Beijing for us. Um, Tim, what's your take? I mean, the Chinese stock market tells us that there's doubts about this recovery. There's, there's doubts about the recovery, but I, on a relative basis, there's no question about where we're going here. And we're hearing this uh, out of Macau. We're hearing certainly where they are in terms of uh, at least over the last six months, the improvement. I, I look at companies like Alibaba and, and Tencent, though, really not necessarily about the Chinese consumer. They're really about the Chinese government. And, and so... Uh, Bob is going to announce they're going to, for the March quarter, they're expected their GMV to be down about two points um, from where they were about a year ago. None of this is a major surprise. I do think that the second half of, of the, the macro story in China is going to be a lot better than expected. It's not going to be 9% growth, but it's not going to be 5%. I think it's going to be on the higher end of expectations. And that's really what we need. But I still don't think Chinese stocks are, are, are trading on that sentiment. I look at Baba. Um, I think Baba on valuation is very interesting. Again, they announced all the spinoffs of the various business units, those will be catalysts when they happen, but we're still waiting. 
It's interesting that Eunice is talking so much about price sensitivity to the point of consumers buying nearly expired food for massive discounts. And at the same time, we heard from all of the luxury retailers, from LVMH to Keurig, uh, that that reported very good sales. Okay. And, and selling it. Yeah, they're doing really well thanks to the China reopening, Courtney. And actually, that's exactly what I was going to bring up is a lot of this is like what's happening here in the U.S., where unfortunately inflation's kicking in after COVID reopened. You are having um, the lower income consumer is hurting more. And so they're having to trade down. And they're having to look for discounts. But it's that higher end consumer has not been hurt as much. And that's exactly what you're seeing in China. So your luxury brands like in France are doing fantastic. But yes, people are having to buy nearly expired food. And so, you know, that that obviously is a horrible discrepancy. But that's exactly what's happening there. Um, and I think that is exactly what you want to look at going forward is um, there's actually an interesting article in The Wall Street Journal today about how investors are much more worried about the Chinese government, to your point, and what that's going to mean for Chinese stocks. So people actually are looking to like luxury brands in Europe and the U.S. as a way to invest in the Chinese consumer without investing in China, right. which is kind of an interesting idea. And not just the Chinese government in terms of putting its foot on the throats of investors, but but the relationship between the U.S., and China guy, which is something that you've been talking about for a long time. I mean, anything with Taiwan and, you know, I don't know, it could be very unpleasant for U.S. businesses over there. Yeah, I, th I think so. And we don't say that to, to create um, panic in any way. I mean, you're just sort of reading the tea leaves and the rhetoric continues. It doesn't go away. And I don't think one day you're going to magically have some detente between the two countries. If anything, I think the rhetoric's going to get ratcheted up uh, as the year progresses. So it, I think... There'll be a couple of these U.S. companies that find themselves in the crosshairs. I thought it would be Starbucks. It hasn't happened. Clearly, Apple's probably the poster child for that. It hasn't happened. The question you have to ask yourself, is it a matter of time or are they going to sort of skate through? I think it's a matter of time. Yeah. Bonowin? Yeah. I mean, listen, on a valuation basis, there's definitely a compelling story to look at across pretty much all of the names that you laid out there. What you really have to ask yourself is why they continue to trade at these suppressed levels, even after we've kind of had this reopening. One, I think it just shows... You know, I don't want to be rude, but the whimsical nature, I mean, for lack of a better term, of some of the geopolitics that are going on in that region. The risk between us escalating U.S. CINO relations, as well as the decisions that they make that seem to happen essentially on a whim. So you have a profitable company like, ba like Baba, like Tim mentioned, that essentially was stripped down to bare bones. Are you willing to deploy capital in a meaningful way in a situation where the rules can change overnight? And I think that's ultimately the challenge that these companies are facing. Coming up, one option trader is making a bullish bet on Tesla, speeding higher here. Should you drive into this trade, we'll bring that call to you and much more ahead on Fast Money. Do not miss CNBC's special presentation. David Faber sitting down live with Elon Musk tomorrow, right after Tesla's annual shareholder meeting in Austin, Texas, talking Tesla, Twitter, AI, SpaceX, and much more. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Well, Tesla's options seeing a huge amount of action today. Mike Coe's got all the details. Mike. Yeah, Tesla, as usual, the busiest single stock option today. Right now, the options market implying a move of more than 4% by the end of the week after that annual meeting. The busiest options were the 170 strike calls, the ones that expire at the end of this week. But the biggest single trade was a purchase of nearly 9,500 of the May 26th weekly 170 calls. The buyer of those paying 475 a contract, that works out to about $4.5 million in premium, betting on an upside move of about 5% by the end of next week. Thanks for that, Mike. Um, Guy, if you were able to sit down with Elon Musk yourself, what would be the first question Ooh. you would ask him? Oh, my goodness. What's, what, what, what is the financial, what are your requirements to continue 
with your bankers and your debt holders in terms of this Twitter deal? Like, what are you on the hook for? I don't know how I would phrase it, but it would revolve something around uh, the debt load around the Twitter deal. So the implication of that is the debt load around the Twitter deal. Does he have to uh, sell shares in sell order to more cover Tesla that? Tesla stock. Yep. Right. Right. Tim. Correct. I would be interested in where he really cares on margin um, to be aggressive against the competitive, the competition. And, and really, you know, I think I know what he would say when I would say, can you continue to push prices lower? And I think he'd say yes. Except that he's been raising prices, which is a, sort of a strange right pricing dynamic. You're about these price cuts and then slowly they creep higher court. And, and we heard from the earnings call that he looks at these prices every week. Yeah, which is amazing you can do that with everything he has going on right now. Um, but I do think that is something that they have the ability of over their competitors is they are able to reduce prices to get demand where they need it or raise it when it when it's going up. And I think they have that benefit. Um, I do think it's good, actually, that he's finally getting a CEO into Twitter because maybe that will put more of his focus onto a Tesla. So hopefully that will help their stocks as we go forward. Um, I think it's still pretty overvalued here. So, yeah, it's nothing I'm touching, but we'll see how tomorrow goes. Yeah, I mean, my question would be pretty simple. What is your target uh, market share? So you're looking at these prices every week and you're changing them, uh, seemingly trying to take market share away from competitors. But where, what's the trigger point? Where's the threshold that you're trying to get to so that we as investors might understand when you may be raising prices or what the strategy is ultimately behind the price fluctuations? All right, we'll find out tomorrow. Again, 6 o'clock is when Faber sits down with Elon Musk. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade time, Guy. Alcoa off a multi-year deal they just signed. Tim Seymour. I think this is the first time we ever got Blue Oyster Cult into Fast Money. So really? don't, yeah, well, yeah, I think so. I hope so. Um, but anyway, don't fear the dollar. Don't fear the dollar EEM. Courtney. At Home Depot, earnings have really been lowered uh, before earnings come out this week. I think it's something to play. Bonoin. Three year treasuries. Three month treasuries, sorry. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.